Welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast, brought to you by the authors of the business book of the year, The Unfair Advantage. This is the podcast for anyone who wants to understand the real forces that lead to success in life and in business. Authors and co-hosts Hassan Kuba and Ash Ali discuss entrepreneurship, self-awareness, and explore the journeys of their remarkable guests so they can understand what set them apart from the pack. Because behind every success story, there's an unfair advantage. Hey everyone, um, I hope you're really well. Welcome back to the Unfair Advantage podcast. In this, our second episode, Hassan delves into Ash's personal and professional origins, from humble beginnings in Birmingham, selling CDs and trainers, to landing a career-changing job in London at just 19. Using the Miles framework, our co-hosts Hassan and Ash pick apart the circumstances and qualities which have given Ash his own unfair advantages. So with no further ado, here is the second episode of the Unfair Advantage podcast. All right, so... I think we should dive into our backgrounds and our stories a little bit now. Let's start with you, Ash. Tell us a bit about your background and, you know, how you grew up and where you came from. Yeah, so hello, everyone. Welcome back to our second episode, I think. So I was born in the inner city of Birmingham in a place called Smallleith. It's one of the most highest poverty areas in the, in the UK, actually. And went to local grammar school there. I was raised in a, in a background where... Basically, my parents were not that well off. And so I took an interest in the entrepreneurship quite early, actually. It was when I was 13 years old, I started doing a paper round. I wanted to start making my own money so I can use it to buy whatever I wanted to buy. I didn't even have an idea. Like some people have this thing where they want to buy a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, so they have to work hard. But that wasn't in my mind at that time, right? I was just like, I just wanted to make money so that I felt like I needed to make some money so I could do my own things rather than relying on my mom and dad. So yeah, at 13, I started a paper round. At 16, I started selling CDs, which I later found out were illegal. That was a fun experience. Had someone knocking on my door going, hey, you can't do this. I'm like, oh, shit. You know, that was interesting. But I went to the local grammar school, one of four siblings. And typical Asian parents, you know, they want you to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer or something. And I wasn't really academically inclined that way. I mean, I did my GCSEs and then I dropped out of college twice. Basically, I'm not academic. (laughs) and it was really hard for me really hard for my parents to understand that because all my other siblings are academic they went on to the university to get master's degrees in computer science and physics and all sorts theology and whatnot whereas I was there sitting there going what shall I do with my life at such an early stage in my life I think it was like 16 probably 17 18 I felt like a failure actually had no opportunities around me most people growing up in my area in small youth in Birmingham the kids, they get up to bad things, right? Drug dealing and stealing and getting into low-end jobs just to survive. And I didn't want to do that. I always had big aspirations. When I was 18 years old, I picked up this book called The Magic of Thinking Big. And it was the first time I kind of read. I don't know where that book even came from, but it was in my house and I found it with no cover on it. I read that book and I was like, wow, this is cool. And that's really where I started to think about self-development, personal development, thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. And then at the age of 18, I started working at Staples. That was my first kind of official job, Staples. How about you? What was your first job, Hassan? So I wasn't the type to want to get jobs. And I didn't even want a lot of material things. But I remember my first one was when I was in sixth form, which is basically 16, 17 years old. It was a part-time job doing telesales. And it was actually really interesting. I learned a lot from it. The good thing about it is it wasn't cold calling. It was people who'd sent in requesting more information about something and we would call them up and we'd give them this free thing and then we'd try and offer them something which they'd have to then pay for. It was like an upsell thing. 
what was interesting is my mood would really dictate how many sales. And I was like, wow, the way we talk on the phone, the energy that we've got has such an impact on whether people say yes to buying something. It's amazing. It was a call center in Camden. It was a really scary area. And if you didn't make a call for like, I think it's like one minute, your computer starts beeping like an alarm to say like, why aren't you making any more calls? It was quite intense. It was a three and a half hour shift with a 15 minute break in the middle, but it was like call after call after call. So that was my first job and just made a bit of pocket money on the side and stuff like that. I never thought of doing anything entrepreneurial and that's the difference. You were doing those CDs and stuff and I was never really buying or selling stuff. I was never thinking of ways to make money. I just thought oh, that'll be taken care of when I get a job when I'm older. And I always thought I'd be an employee. Yeah, you're right. It's kind of funny because people think it's all about making money, but it kind of wasn't for me. You know, like when I was at Staples, I was very good at selling, like you were saying, you know, like sales skills. You know, one of the top skills for entrepreneurs is the ability to sell. I didn't know I had this ability in me. But when I was at Staples, I was the top salesperson in my department out of 56 stores. Oh, wow. They were really wanting me to become a manager at Staples. And I sat there thinking, no, I don't want to be in a stationery store, stocking shelves and making managing people, even though I was you know, selling computers at the time, because with Staples, they had the business department. One of the things I really remember, well, kind of like the impetus for me to drive me even more, the district manager came down and I wasn't there. But then he'd left me something behind and it was a small business card, a Staples business card saying, congratulations, well done on being the top salesperson. And that's what they'd given me. And he left that for me in the canteen. And I was like, really? Is that it? I was <laughs> like, you know, I bust my balls for like, you know, so many months. And I got a small card saying, well done. And it really didn't motivate me. And that was the impetus for me to say, you know what? I'm not being appreciated here. But then there was another benefit. There was another benefit to Staples, right? Which we talk about in the book. And there was something else that you did there. Ah, uh, yes. The other benefit was, I remember once as the floor manager called me up and goes, Ash, I need to have a chat with you. And I was like, okay, well, why do you need to have a chat with me? He goes, look, I need you to have a five minutes. Just, do you want to just come into the room? And it had all these CCTV cameras around. And then he took me to a monitor and then played a CCTV recording. There it said, so Ash, you started at 8 p.m. stocking the books. And at 8.54, you moved from the book aisle, having stayed in one spot holding a book. And at 8.54, you moved to the aisle. What are you doing? And I was like, ah, uh, I was actually reading the dummies guides on HTML programming and the internet. It was so interesting for me. So I learned to read a lot more and take my mind off the drudgery of work. Yeah. Coming from like not doing well at college and dropping out twice and not being the academic one, you're suddenly there staying behind at work, reading books. Reading like dense, dense how-to guides. Yeah, yeah. During work. What was driving you to read? What was, why were you doing that? What made you interested? You know, because I was so bored of my job. <laughs> I didn't want to shelve all of the things, right? I was bored of my job. I took an interest in it and I was like, oh, that's, this is quite interesting. This, what is all this HTML programming stuff? What is all this IT stuff and networking? And I was just intrigued around it. I was intrigued around what it was. The books were quite dense, actually, quite boring to read. Yeah, exactly. They're not, they're not even that simple, as you said, especially at that time. They just intrigued me and somehow inside me, I felt like if I could learn like two or three things on the day of my shift, I was doing something good. Was this before your friend decided, and I'm kind of spoiler alert, but when your friend with the shoe store, and the family run business. Yeah, yeah, it was before. Yeah. And that was before. So you literally had no reason to learn it. Yeah. You just were curious about it. Yeah, I was literally just curious about the internet, what the internet was, what HTML programming oh. was, what web pages were, what e-commerce was. 
this was before my school friend, he was at university in Manchester and he's like, Ash, you know, why don't we set up a website selling shoes on the internet? I was like, nah. He's like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. You know, you got some e-commerce skills and HTML programming skills. And I was like, okay. So, you know, I got myself a computer from the store. It was a display model. And with that PC came this little thing called a modem. And that opened up my world. I went home and I plugged it in and I was on the internet. You know, we, we talk about our childhood only because I think when you look at success now, a lot of it comes stems from your childhood and the upbringing where you are. And you look back at it and go, okay, you know, what were the disadvantages and advantages I had? You know, one of the disadvantages I had was the fact that I grew up with not much money, right? I remember, I think we cut this out of the book, but we're talking about growing up with very little. <laughs> Did your parents once get you candles on, on a piece of bread for a birthday? <laughs> that was a story that was in the book. And I was like, Ash, that can't be because they couldn't afford the cake. So <laughs> we, took, we took this out. But like, you genuinely grew up with very little. Your dad had a simple job in a factory, right? Did you grow up feeling like you had little or were there times at school which made you feel like, okay, I need to make something of myself? Yeah, I think it was when I was older. You start to see and feel it when you're a bit older, I think. When I was younger, I never really knew any difference. I had no clue. You know, I was having fun. You've worked with me for a while now, so you know that I try to have fun and enjoy myself in the process as much as possible. And so I suppose I've taken that from the fact that I had a simple life, right? To have, make simple things more enjoyable and fun. And do you feel like that made you, when, when there were times they were going on all these skiing trips and there were school trips that you couldn't afford to join them in and stuff like that, did that make you think like, I, I want to make something of myself? Did you have this kind of fire in your belly? You read that book, you already mentioned, Magic of Thinking Big. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to speak to my parents about what I want to do, my ambitions, my thoughts, but my parents didn't know anything about the world of professional work. Mm. And I saw my friends, dads and moms being doctors and lawyers and professionals, and I could see how they were being mentored by them. And I always wanted to have this kind of person to mentor me and guide me. And that's one of the things I really missed out on, which is why we give back now by mentoring and helping other people, because not having that role model was a big thing. That's the thing that I was missing. So I felt like I was missing a role model. Mm. And so my role model became the books that I read. So fast forward, tell us about starting the e-commerce website. Yeah, it's an e-commerce website, really cool. Started selling shoes on the internet, which is really weird at that time. Everyone said, who's going to buy shoes? We had tons of people buying shoes. The only problem was there was lots of fraud. <laughs> you know, when someone's buying like eight pairs of shoes, all different sizes for like 600 pounds and we were sending them out, we kind of clocked on eventually to realize, oh shit, there's a lot of fraud. In those days, fraud detection was very different, right? So in, in the time when I was building the website, the biggest issue was how the hell do we optimize the images of the website? How does it load on a 56K modem? So that was the interest in, in, in the early days of how e-commerce worked, you know, how to deal with fraud, build inventory, how to build an e-commerce website. So that was really interesting. And having built it, we real, I realized very quickly that actually this is something which is great, but I like building stuff. I don't like running the actual business, which is what my friend was doing with his parents' business, right? So he took over the business and carried it on. And I moved to London, started working at an agency and I'm going to fast track the beginnings. I started working at an agency, building websites, building up my expertise around websites. And then I moved into marketing, head of new media marketing and learned SEO, learned email marketing, learned all the digital marketing skills that people talk about now. I learned them a long time ago. You basically got headhunted to do that when you were 19 because you'd won an award, right? An award for the e-commerce website. Yeah, we won an award for the e-commerce website. Agency saw it. They said, hey, Ash, you look quite cool. Picked up my rucksack, went to London, had an interview with them in the morning. In the afternoon, they produced a contract and said, hey, we want you to be a project manager of our company. And here we are. Two weeks later, I was in London, staying in a B&B &B with nowhere to live. 
and not much money to me at all. And that's how I got into London. Amazing. And that was your fresh faced 19 year old in London. Suddenly you were the head of a department and, <laughs> and then you get approached by a Danish man, right? Yeah, yeah. So I worked in a, loads of different companies, dot-com bubble burst. I did some side hustles that never worked out. But at the same time, I was still working in London. And I met Jesper Book in Starbucks, who's like, I'm looking for a marketing person for this new concept called Just Eat. And it was selling takeaways on the internet. I was like, nah, that's not going to work. Thankfully, he came back to me after three months, having spoken to him initially. He said, Ash, I want you to meet the team. And then I became the first marketing director of Just Eat. I did the first TV campaign there and I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. And Ash, at this stage, like you've just been a rising star. It's, it's funny. You had this kind of low when you f say you felt like a failure, age yeah. 17, age 18, yeah. right? You were the black sheep of the family. Everybody else, all your brothers and sisters were doing like masters and PhD programs and stuff. And you didn't even yeah. finish your college, which is before university. But funnily enough, you talk about how that helped you feel more free. And your parents kind of just went, oh, well, they had low expectations of you. And in a weird way, that worked out for the better. But it's really cool that you talk about then 19 years old, you have the e-commerce website, you get given an award online, you get headhunted by this company, you go down to London, and suddenly you're earning a lot of money. You have a big like corner, like penthouse thing in Canary Wharf, basically, at the age of like what, 19 years old. And yeah, there's a dot-com bust, but that's that just affected everybody. But that just showed you how... You can't control everything and there's a bit of luck and a bit of timing to everything. But what was interesting to me about your story is how you built up this expertise. You were even reading stuff in Staples Corner and it was the perfect timing to learn about the internet and computers. And you know what? It's still good timing to learn about it. But back then, you have even less competition and you can be one of the only people who knows how to get traffic to a website, how to get sales through a website and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's basically what got you the Just Eat gig, right? Yeah. Basically, uh, you know, Jesper Book said, you're kick-ass. He never looked at my qualifications or degrees or anything like that. He's just like, yeah, you know what you're talking about when it comes to online. And I was like, great. Yeah. Okay. And that, that was it. So it's my expertise that won the, won the opportunity. You know, it, it was the ability for me to read things and apply things very quickly. And things were coming out then, like SEO was new, search engine optimization, and all these new th things were coming out. And I was kind of like doing them at the time they were coming out. So right at the cutting edge, really. So I was learning all the new stuff. I had a lot more knowledge than most people around digital marketing. And now there's a lot of people who have a lot of knowledge of digital marketing, but the, the trunk knowledge, I call it, the base knowledge of digital marketing, I have all that. And so that's really helped me. So one of the things we talk about in the book is education and expertise. So I never had a degree, so I felt less entitled as well. So I felt like I had to go and learn everything. You know, I didn't like doing exams and assessments. I just like to learn and do, learn and do. So I like that feedback loop and make mistakes. And I felt like school was all about when you make mistakes, they're going to say your shit. And that's what it was. I made mistakes all the it's time. Like the end. But, yeah, it's the yeah, end. It was the end goal. Yeah. Make a mistake and that's yeah. it. Oh, sorry, mate. You got, you got yourself a D in that and that's it. Sorry. What I feel like is that you can always improve. And I also believe in like neuroplasticity. I think you, you can improve yourself and you can make yourself uh, more intelligent and smarter about certain things in life. But then the reverse of that, of not being so super intelligent in terms of what people quantify as IQ, people say they had something else. And that's called emotional intelligence. We call it EQ. We talk about it in the book. So I developed my emotional intelligence much faster than I developed my innate intelligence. But then I became smarter by developing my emotional intelligence and then reading to develop my intelligence and then connected the dots more. And one of the things I say is that I want to be the fastest learner in the room. I want to learn fast. And I also want to be around smart people. 
I hate being the smartest person in the room. It just puts me off. I'm like, oh, I'm not learning anything. So I like, feel like I want to grow. So it's kind of natural tendency for me to towards growth. So not having a degree made me less entitled, basically. I would be doing, willing to do anything and learn anything. To go through the Miles framework for you. So money, you had very little, but that gave you a fire in your belly and it gave you no entitlement and you felt like you had nothing to lose, even in terms of expectations for your parents. Intelligence, your book smarts and your academic stuff didn't feel like you were the top. But then I think of it as like an entrepreneurial learning style. You just want to apply. I've seen how you read books. You skim them. You find what to apply. Like, okay, let's try this out. And that's amazing. We mentioned in the book, and I've noticed this yourself, like you can make interactions fun. You can, you can negotiate. You can build rapport easily. You've just got good people skills and that emotional intelligence there. And something else that you haven't mentioned is your creativity, which can come from the lack of money. Because having less money, you were more creative. And that was great for early stage startup. And you had to learn a new skill set. I remember us giving talks to like EY and all these kinds of things, innovation events, and how it was like, well, when you get money and lots of funding, you have to change how you think and you have to deploy it. And you were against doing the TV ad campaign in the beginning because it wasn't like internet and you couldn't track it. But actually, it works well. And then location, you were in Birmingham. But luckily, <laughs> speaking of luck, luckily, you're able to get a job in London because of you know, this friend that did the e-commerce, you had learned this stuff in Staples. It all kind of came together. It's almost like you can you can connect the dots looking back, but it's not like when you picked those books up in Staples, you knew where that was going. You're right. You know, like when we wrote the book, we wrote the book for people who felt like the underdogs. So I've always felt like the underdog. And because I've always felt like the underdog, I'm always willing to do a bit more to go the extra mile. And I think it kind of works in reverse order for me now because I've come to the stage where I've done a lot and I'm like, I should be taking it a bit more easy, but I'm still like 100 miles an hour on certain things. Well, I should be able to stand back a bit more. I think some self-awareness for myself there, actually, you know, maybe to slow down a bit more. But I've always been high energy. I've always wanted to come up with new unorthodox thinking because I have this feeling of it's okay if it's a mistake, it's fine. We can learn from it very quickly. You know, a mistake is a learning opportunity rather than a shit, you failed your exams and it's all game over. I had to reframe that yeah. in my head. And because I didn't go through the education system, I wasn't kind of like brainwashed by it. I was like, yeah. I can go and do what I want and people will laugh at me. And so it was kind of like a, kind of like a naive optimism that I had, <laughs> right? And that yeah. naivety, that naivety still today, that childish curiosity and naivety is what makes me want to be more creative, creating different ideas from different industries, from B2C, B2B, different sectors, bringing them together, joining some dots, seeing where it can take us, testing things out, experimenting, be willing to fail, Right. So that's what all these type of that childhood has led me to. I wrote an article once on LinkedIn about how I became a growth hacker because I had unconditional love from my parents. Yeah. <laughs> and what do I mean by that? Basically, my parents were like, ah, oh, every time I come up with a new idea, my parents are like, oh, yeah, go for it. You know, good luck. They kind of like, just let me carry on. Whereas my, if it was my brother or my sister, I'd be like, no, 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 you need to study. You need to do this professionally and properly. And <laughs> so I kind of like got that, the other end of the stick, which was like, okay, it's fine. Just do something. With your life, so I was like, oh, okay, I'll try things. Dropped out of college twice. They were just like, oh, had no expectations for you anymore. So now it was just like, any idea yeah, you yeah. Have, yeah, go for it. <laughs> so removing the expectations from my life of whatever I do now is a success for me. Yeah. So E stands for education and expertise. So the education side it kind of stops short when you're around 16, 17. But the expertise, we've already touched on this, like you've built it yourself. You learn from books and then applying it, books, applying it. And one thing you haven't mentioned, but I've noticed in you, you're really good at learning from people. This is using your emotional intelligence as well. You, you'll sit with someone 
and you'll just pick their brains about it and you'll be like, oh, okay, that's how that's done. You'll talk to people at different departments at work. I remember you mentioned this to me, that you'll take the boss out to lunch or something. Am I remembering that right? This is something you told me ages ago. We haven't talked about it, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I was always intrigued to learn about other parts of the business. I was really fascinated by business and learning about other people's skill sets. You know, my daughter keeps saying to me, Daddy, why do you talk to everyone and anyone? You know, <laughs> why are you talking to the checkout lady? Yeah, you really do. <laughs> you really talk to everyone. And I'm like, there's an opportunity to learn something from everyone, no matter what their rank and what their position in life. And so for me, it's like, you know, that curiosity. And sometimes people don't like it. Sometimes, oh, wow, why is he asking me so many questions? You know, <laughs> you know sometimes like, am I going to copy their business idea or something? No, <laughs> you know, well, I've got my own things going. Well, I'm not going to copy your business. I'm just intrigued because I'm interested in doing things. But I've learned more and more, though, in life that people are becoming more cynical as well. There's a lot of uh, people out there who are selling the six-figure course and a blueprint for this and that and a lot of people have become cynical so when you get to know somebody i've realized that you know when i'm asking questions i've had people who wanted advice from me but they don't want to talk about the idea and want me to sign ndas and stuff and there's a piece of advice for startup founders you don't need an nda that's not going to save you from anything right if you want to get advice and guidance from people you need to let them in into the conversation and sometimes people hold back it's all about execution anyway really yeah it is i've got a million one idea it doesn't mean i'm going to do every single one and it doesn't mean i'm going to take over of course you've got to be cautious on who you're speaking to but at the same time too many people when they want to start something i felt like they hold themselves back by not releasing the idea and talking to other people about it and the best way to learn is to talk to other people so that's why when you see when we have meetings and stuff and I'm learning from other people because I'm throwing the ideas out and going, okay, what about this? But then also, I'm, I don't know if you think this, but I, I feel this. I, I do want to give value back. I do help people. I want to give back. I want to guide them. At the every, end of most conversations, I'll always ask, how can I help you? Definitely, yeah. yeah. No, we'll both have that. You know, sometimes people are very much like, <laughs> oh, you know. Well, I'd like to think I'm like that too. <laughs> so actually, I was going to say that what you just said about curiosity and asking a lot of questions, it reminds me of Chris Saka. He's won the Midas Touch for investors, for top investors. And he's been a, a guest on Shark Tank a few times. He talks about how he was at Google. If I'm remembering this correctly, he would ask to sit in on other people's meetings and to take notes and to do minutes just so he can learn about other sides of the business. So that reminds me of him. So I think I see that big in you. And then finally, for S is for status. Status like working class, immigrant, Pakistani family, very simple. I don't know if we even mentioned this in this call. It's in the book about how you had shotgun murders on your street. Like the house in front of yeah. you had like yeah. police cordoned off because somebody yeah, yeah. murdered somebody else with a shotgun, which is insane because we're in the UK. People don't have guns as commonly in the UK. So really rough background and very young. There's a story in Status about how you were applying for a job at one point they looked at you and they were like, oh, you got the experience, but you're very young. <laughs> and you took, you took your CV back and you added 10 years to your age and then you passed it back to them and said, is that all right now? Yeah. So status has played a big role. And we talk about status and as we said, three things, like how you're perceived, your network, and also your inner status. So can you touch on that a bit for us and how, what, what was that like for you? Yeah, so because I always felt like the underdog and the other thing was I felt like I had nothing to lose. So I'd always be a bit courageous and do crazy things like the CV thing, you know, right. uh, cross my number <laughs> off and there you go, mate, CEO of the company. Now, would you give me the job? And most people think, no, no, you can't do that. He's a CEO of the company. But I was kind of like, I had nothing to lose. Right. Right. Yeah. So because of that, I had no fear. And I think fear is something which is a big challenge for a lot of people, fear and doubt about who they are and about themselves. And as I get older in life now, I'm getting to understand myself more and get more self-awareness. There's a reason why we wrote the book, right? To help people get their own self-awareness. And so the status was a big issue for me because, 
you know, working class, brummy, wants to do cool things, asks a lot of questions in a new world, doesn't know the etiquette of office politics and how things work, wants to do good, fun stuff, you know, and having fun around it. And I felt like I never had the skills to deal with life at that stage. How do you deal with people stealing your ideas, for example, or how did you deal with people having more worldly experience than you because you've not been traveling? I think the most important thing with status is how you feel about yourself from your own stories and how you tell the stories to yourself. My story is unique to me and no one else can replace it. So I start to look and think about that. Well, actually, there's some good things in there that allow me to empathize with other people who are growing up, which whatever their background there is. So I start to understand my stories more and the inner status was more important for me than the external status. I think we grow up in a world where, you know, your job title, the car you drive, the clothes you wear, people look at you and the watch you have and they judge you. But what you need to do is be able to judge yourself internally. And we play certain roles in life. I'm a co-founder of a company called U-Hubs. I'm co-author with you, Hassan. And, you know, I'm invested in other startups and I'm a father. You know, there's so many roles that I have to play. And each role has my own status derived around it. And I think we cannot be perfect and not everything's going to be right. But that's what makes me so unique. And that's what we try and say in the book. Everyone's unique and special. Everyone's got their own unique story. Once you reframe your personal stories away from being victim mindset towards aspiration and thinking about the world in an abundance way, it changes your outlook on life. You know, yes, maybe you never had much, much money, but what does that mean now? It means we can get much more done with less money. That's great, you know. And then I can learn the skill of having more money to invest in the right things. So I think it's being self-aware of that and realizing that your strengths matter and society and school and everyone else around you will always try to highlight your weaknesses. And you have to go back to your strengths and go, okay, these were my strengths. This is what I should double down on. And guess what? Okay, if I'm not very good with the financial side, I should get a financial advisor or an accountant or someone who knows how to do the numbers. I don't have to try and learn that as well. And I think that's really where I started to understand, actually, you know what? I don't have to learn everything. I don't have to be good at everything in life. You know, I'd be good at what I'm good at and then work with other people potentially that, you know, we both wrote the book together. You know, most of my companies were co-founded with other people. I'm not a solo guy. I'm a co-founding dual team type of guy. I like to work with people, help other people grow together. I believe the tide rises together. So we all rise, you know, and I'm that kind of mindset, basically. Thank you so much, Ash. Thank you for sharing. And it's good to get some more insights into the background and how you became who you are today. Cool. Thanks, As. So thank you for listening to the Unfair Advantage podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. For more information on how to find your unfair advantage, visit us at theunfairacademy.com.